I was worried when, when Sophia voted first for primary because <laughs> judging by her draft picks, that was a bad sign. <laughs> but but I'm glad that that went Don't forward. you worry. Okay, not a not All a great prognostic together. sign to vote with Sophia. Welcome to Freely Filtered, the irregularly irregular podcast that summarizes and discusses recent NFJC journal clubs. NFJC is the Twitter Nephrology Journal Club where nephrologists meet in social space to discuss the research and developments that are driving nephrology forward. This podcast is for educational and entertainment purposes only and is not intended to give medical advice. If you have questions about your health, we suggest that you talk with your doctor rather than take the advice of some self-appointed randoms on a podcast. This podcast discusses off-label and unapproved medications. Hello, my name is Joel Toff, Kidney Boy on Twitter. Tonight we have Sophia. Hi, everybody. I'm Sophia Ambruso. I'm an assistant professor and clinician educator at the Denver VA and University of Colorado. I tweet at Sophia Kidney, and I have no conflicts of interest, except that I don't see that many TMAs, and I've probably missed a few of them, too. <laughs> oh, gosh. Josh. Hi there, Josh Waitsman. I'm a nephrologist and scientist at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center here in Boston. Uh, I tweeted Jay Waits. I don't have any conflicts of interest. I just really like learning about TMAs, I think, like many folks. And I'm excited to hear more about today's uh, topic and, and ex- from our experts. Swap. Hey, I'm Swapnil Hiramut. I'm a nephrologist epidemiologist in Ottawa, Canada. I can be found on Mastodon at hswapnil on the Med- Mastodon server. I don't have any conflicts at all, uh, except that I'm pretty ignorant and my knowledge of TMA probably is 20 years old. Excellent. Excellent. We have two special guests here. Anna Vinikova. Hi, I'm Anna Vinikova. I'm an associate professor of medicine and division of nephrology at Virginia Commonwealth University. And I'm also the executive committee of NIF Madness member. So my conflict of interest is that I am the executive on the TMA region and I absolutely think it should win. Well, I will tell you, I, we, I was there when we invited Anna onto the executive committee. And it's, it's like the dream come true. Like she was a Neff Madness super fan. She was throwing these unbelievable Neff Madness parties. And we were like, she's got all the enthusiasm that we need. Let's bring her onto the executive committee. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's an awesome story. I love that you went from super fan to actually creator of Neff Madness. But now we know what her angle was. She's like, I got to get TMA on Neff Madness. <laughs> <laughs> I just grabbed the topic when it came up. And then the other the other special guest is our content expert, Anuja uh, Java. Hi, everyone. This is Anuja Java. I'm an associate professor and a transplant nephrologist at Washington University in St. Louis. I'm also the director of kidney transplant at the John Cochran VA Medical Center here. And I'm really excited to be here today to talk to you all about that something I'm extremely passionate about, complimented TMA. Outstanding, outstanding. So before we get into it, my uh, my conflicts of interest are have to do with the fact that I am quite invested in Neff Madness. But uh, this year's Neff Madness is different. After la- last year's Neff Madness ended, completing a decade-long journey, I stepped away from the executive team. No one has gained more from Neff Madness than I did. The experience of producing an international online educational game was unique as it was amazing. I made many lasting friendships and was really able to make an indelible dent in nephrology education. Together, we pioneered novel ideas in education 
that have spawned numerous imitators, but none have exceeded the original. Right from the beginning, one of the sometimes stated, sometimes secret goals of Neph Madness was to spin up an engaged online community of nephrology enthusiasts. And the real legacy of Neph Madness is Neph Twitter, or whatever its name morphs into as Twitter collapses in, in on itself in a black hole of capitalist narcissism. And this is the moment where I'm supposed to say that stepping away has been bittersweet. But honestly, it's just sweet. I was out of ideas for Neph Madness and had nothing left to contribute. And stepping away has made me more excited for Neph Madness than I've been in years. I'm excited to experience the madness as a tribute rather than a game maker. The current executive team is experienced and capable. And this pod crawl that we started in 2022 is the last idea I contributed to Neph Madness. And when the executive team approached me this year about redoing it, I was gla- I gladly signed up. Neph Madness may be in my rearview mirror, but it will never be out of my heart. Okay, we are talking about TMAs. So Anna, how did how did this become a topic in Neff Madness? What was the executive executive team thinking about? Well, you know how we pick Neff Madness topics is, of course, a big secret. However, you know you turn around and there's a new review article. By secret, she means they throw a dart at a cha- at the table of contents of Brenner Rector. That's what <laughs> she means by secret. Secret. Come on now. Well, come well, on. You, you know better. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, like TMA is everywhere, and they've been one after another. Excellent review article, literally on a weekly basis. And we just kind of had to get on the bandwagon uh, not to be left behind. I remember, I think I was a second year resident, and it was around 2014 or so. And I had a patient who was postpartum and essentially had a presentation of a TMA. And it wasn't all that common. And the nephrologist I was working with was like, oh, wow, this is exciting. We get to use eculizumab. And the New England Journal of Medicine review had just come out. And it doesn't even touch where we're at now with TMA. Um, And, you know, it was a lot of atypical HUS. There was like, yeah, mostly pediatric sort of genetic things. And so it was really in its infancy. And I can't believe from like 2014, when I wasn't even thinking about nephrology to now that it's really expanded to where it has gotten to already. And what sort of propelled that? So I think that when you were seeing these patients, I don't think that there was not TMA there. I think we just didn't understand or we were not diagnosing enough patients, partly because we didn't understand the pathophysiology. We did not have the genetic background. The genetic testing was not done as as much as it's, it's being done right now. As you mentioned yourself, you know, the drug was relatively new. People didn't really know they could, you know, what anti-complement therapy could do. So I think that this is not something that is a new entity. I think it's been there always, but it's just never been identified. And I think that's that's where we are now with, with better understanding. The biggest problem was that it was a disease of the hematologists and the secret was you had to have the schisticides and they're the only ones who could look at the peripheral smear and see them and tell us if there's enough schisticides to make this diagnosis. And if there wasn't, we really couldn't do anything, right? And it feels like in all these algorithms that we use now to work our way through, they were hematologist driven from the start, right? It was always like, is this TTP or other stuff? And now it feels like there's lots of other stuff we think about, including atypical HUS right at the top, because we have medicines and a better understanding of how these things work. 
And I think that gives us a place to actually get into discussion a lot earlier and actually learn this better and be a part of the, the treatment team in a different way. Yeah, absolutely. I agree with Josh. At your institution, like who, who is leading the TMAs? Is that usually a nephrology-driven treatment team and di- diagnostic and treatment team, or is it or hematology leading and nephrology is indicated? Or how, how does that happen where you're at? It's very variable, Joel, from what I know in different institutions. And I think what really drives that decision is who has the expertise. Is there a TMA champion? Is there a nephrologist or a hematologist who really is seeing this? So for example, at WashU, since I am there, I'm a nephrologist and I'm known for my TMA expertise. Whenever there Wait a minute. Let's let and let's let's hold off for right a How how did you become how does one become a TMA expert? Did you do a <laughs> is there a fellowship? Can I can I do a fellowship in TMA? So right. I what I was telling you was that after I did my clinical fellowship, so I did a I did my nephrology fellowship, I went into transplant fellowship, and then I did four years of research fellowship in immunology or complement biology. And this Mm. was a very atypical career decision for me. Uh, I got interested in immunology when I was a transplant fellow. And at that time, my mentor, Dan Brennan, introduced me to John Atkinson, who was the chief of rheumatology and who's known as the complement guru. He has basically trained every complementologist who is in the US and in Europe. That's where I, that's where my complement expertise comes in is that I trained at the bench, doing bench research with uh, a complement expert. Did you ever intend to like leave clinical medicine? Were you going to be a uh, pure lab? No, no. My heart, my heart's in clinical medicine, Joel. I don't think I could ever see myself doing hundred percent bench work. And I, but you know what? That bench research has given me. It's it's really changed my perspective on how I see science, how I see medicine or nephrology. And really what I enjoy doing is translational work. So I love to see my patients and I can use all the bench expertise that I do into clinical work. I still do some research. We have a technician and we still make some mutations, characterize them. That's kind of, that still goes on. And I have some funding for another bench work. Uh, I would say more like a translational project I'm into related to actually preeclampsia. So, but that's, I would say 30% of my work, but a major chunk is still clinical administrative duties. Okay. And so when I asked that question, you were actually answering a different question. Where were we when I asked you, how did you become an expert in TMA? Did anybody remember where we were on that one? Joel asked who manages, whether hematology or nephrology. That was the question. Yeah. Yeah. And you you went to to who's smartest, which seems like the right way to do it, right? (laughs) Right. Depends on the expertise that's available at the institution, you know, is is what ends up happening. Ideally, it should be, you know, I've always advocated for this. There should be a TMA team. If, If it was possible to make that in every institution, that's the ideal way to go. But even if it's not possible, I think there should be at least a regional TMA team that should bring in the expertise from hematology and nephrology together is what is how I envision that this the future should be. And Anusia, just going along with this, who has control over plasmapheresis at your institution? Is that you and nephrology team? Is that a joint decision between you and hematology? How does that work? Right. So for plasmapheresis, when it comes to TMA, hematology handles the plasmapheresis uh, because tri- primarily doing that when they're looking for TTP. And TTP is I, is a hematological disorder and I'll give it to them. So when when they're consulted, it's because somebody's trying to figure out if this is TTP or not and pheresis is, needs to happen. Of course, as you know, Josh, for transplant, you know, we do pheresis all the time. But, but when it comes to this particular TMA work, it's hematology who's doing it while the diagnosis of TTP is being ruled out. 
That's really interesting. At our at all of the institutions where I was trained at, University of Colorado, Denver Health, and the VA, we do all of the plasmapheresis. Yeah, same here. Uh, our pathology do do plasmapheresis. Yeah, at at VCU, the transplant nephrology actually took initiative on the TMA. We had very kind of poor recognition of this uh, until current transplant nephrologists taught us all about it. And so, I will add to that, Anna, that whenever we are looking at a TMA in a transplant population, that's entirely us. There is no hematology ever involved. Hematology gets involved whenever, say, there is a pregnant patient and they're worried about TTP or, you know, medicine consults for somebody. But when it comes to transplant, hematology is never involved. Okay. So for this year's NEF Madness, the TMA region has two teams. Anna, what are are the two teams? So it's primary TMA and secondary TMA. And primary TMA is basically complement-mediated TMA, or what was formerly called atypical HUS. So we are not using that term any longer. So I guess my question right here is, so this was news to me. I, th- I was still thinking that atypical HUS was a thing. Is, how new is this or how accepted is this nomenclature? Are you guys leading the charge here or kind of cleaning up after the revolution happened and I just didn't notice it? Well, Dr. Java is leading the charge here. <laughs> the term AHAS hasn't completely gone away is what I want to say. But we are trying to slowly get away from that term. I will say this, that we have a nomenclature committee that has been working on this for about a year. We are at the stage Who's of Who's we? Out. Who's um, we? It is, it is an international committee that has been brought together by NKF. So like the TMA task force? TMA task force, you may call it that. Do you have t-shirts? And yeah, no flag, you should no definitely flag. make t-shirts. Or, or jerseys. We need TMA jerseys to go with that bracket. No podcasts, no t-shirts, no swag. Just work. So, oh. um, so we are working on a white paper. Hopefully we'll have some data out. But, you know, there has been this movement amongst at least clinicians that the term AHAS as you know, as you know, it it never really described what the pathophysiology was. When it was first coined, I guess, it was because we knew what typical HUS was. Clinicians knew they had sugar toxin and whichever patients didn't fill that criteria of typical HUS, they called them atypical HUS. But calling something that it's not, it's not really describing anything. So for that reason, plus, as I mentioned earlier, as we are understanding the pathophysiology better and, and now that there is so, there's TMA from so many different etiologies, I think it's important to really clarify that nomenclature. And AHAS should actually only stand for complement-mediated TMA. But if you look at the literature, people call secondary AHAS, drug-induced AHAS, which is really, I think it's confusing. The other term that I had heard was uh, microangiopathic hemolytic anemia. It had sort of gained popularity Uh a few years ago, but it has fallen off. Is there a reason why you would throw off the anemia and just do TMA? So it's part of the process there, you know, so during the, during our meetings, we've also talked about, do we just call it endotheliopathy? Do we call it microangiopathy? There have been all, all of that has been discussed, but ultimately it came to the point that none of these terms fully describes the process. Even TMA is not perfect. I'll tell you that. But microangiopathic hemolytic anemia is not the only manifestation. So I think that's, you know, as Anna said, like part of the process. You know, I was just teaching medical students and they're like, so wait, you can have renally limited TMA, but then why is it called still called atypical HUS? And like trying to sort of unify this process that's happening, which is an endothelial issue, 
is is really challenging, particularly as it's expanded and people are recognizing its very variability in presentation. Trying to teach it as well as give it a name is challenging. And in general, there is still so many classifications. Even if you kind of go away from the AHUS, the we really kind of bought into the classification that Anuja told us to use, which is basically complement-mediated TMA. That is most of the primary TMAs. And then all the secondaries, which could sometimes be complement-mediated, but usually are triggered, not caused by the disease. And then somewhere in the corner, there is this TTP, which we don't want to talk about. <laughs> right, because it just distracts everybody, right? Right. And it's not a nephrology topic. Sorry, is TTP still going to exist as an entity or is it going to be one of these TME? Yeah, so that's a great question. So we talked about it. I think there was this proposal, should we call it ADAMTS-13 deficient TMA? Because we were trying to uniform everything, complement-mediated TMA, drug-induced TMA, pregnancy-induced TMA. So I think TTP will probably stay and it'll be TTP slash ADAMTS-13. But TTP is, there There has been no debate about the nomenclature for TTP. It, I, my feeling is it's not going to go away. I don't think it's going to change to ADAMTS-13 deficient that disease. That disease name and entity is pretty specific and that's not probably problematic. Yeah, yeah. Okay, nice, nice. And then in, in this world of TMAs, just do you have a rough sense of proportions? Like how many are TTP? How many are primary TMA? And how many are secondary TMA? I think the majority are secondary TMAs, Josh. You know, complement mediated TMA mm -hmm. is a smaller, I think it's a smaller percentage compared to secondary. I don't think, I don't know if I can give you percentages. But because secondary TMAs can happen from so many different etiologies, you know, you have high blood pressure, pregnancy, infections, drugs, you know, autoimmune diseases, malignancies, that I think if you mm -hmm. looked at percentage-wise, complement-mediated TMA is a, smaller is a smaller percentage. TTP, probably even more rare than that. Is that fair? Uh, you know, TTP somewhere is probably in between. I don't think it's as rare... I know I missed these in diagnosis, and it's just helpful to get a sense of like how many of each class of things have I missed over the course <laughs> of a service block. Yeah, I'd be interested to see what numbers Joel has. I never have actually looked at the numbers. So this is a book called Nephrology Secrets. <laughs> <laughs> we were supposed to declare Shameless conflicts plug. of interest at the beginning, Shameless Joel. <laughs> and so no conflict of interest. Buy this book. It's awesome. <laughs> my, my kids want to eat an enchilada. Okay, so STHUS, so typical HUS, is 60 cases per million patient years in children less than five, 10 to 20 per million patient years in the overall population, including adults. So that's, that's your typical HUS. Mm -hmm. TTP is 0 0.1 cases per million in children and three cases per million in adults. Mm -hmm. Oh my goodness, are you kidding me? Three in a million. And then atypical HUS, because this is an old book and we're going to revise it. Uh, we'll get it. We'll get different authors. We'll get some guy named Sparks write this chapter. Atypical HUS is one case in a million in the overall population. One in a million. So that's, that's probably changed now. When did you guys publish that? This was about five years ago. I know it's five years ago because we're starting to, we're ramping up to write another edition right now. We got a meeting on Sunday to pick authors. So Anuja, sharpen your pen. Yeah, but this is where, you know, I think 
the numbers, you know, again, that, that goes back to that same question that are we diagnosing all of these patients appropriately? You know, it's a rare disease, but I, I don't know if it's as rare as, as, as one in a million is what I'd say. Or, you know, of I course, mean, that I'm, would be, for Detroit area, that'd be six a year. And that kind of feels about right. But also, I mean, you just think of the medicines and the drugs that we're using now and the tyrosine kinase inhibitors. And, and, and so we're, we're having those emerge as something that we're reaching for for so many different disease entities. I had a, I had a guy with like an endotheliosis that was almost like a pre, that was like a pre-TMA. And, and so that's becoming more common. And so I think there, and a lot of those, you'd be like, okay, well, we'll just stop the medicine. You never biopsy them to confirm it. But most likely, that's probably what we're seeing there. Right. I think there's a huge under recognition and yep. uh, only now we are doing the genetic testing. Right. And the other the other thing is that these diseases they're so intermixed. I mean, mm-hmm. it's sometimes very hard to say what is primary, what is secondary. Even writing this little write up, I was getting confused trying to figure out what to put where. Yeah. Well, I was totally fascinated by the malignant hypertension TMA and those who have recurrent malignant hypertension likely actually may have a primary TMA issue, not secondary, and that's maybe a greater a greater population that really do have a primary issue if you actually do genetic testing. And, and so perhaps we should be doing genetic testing in our younger populations who are having that issue. This is the thing that I feel like I, I run into when I think about or see these patients. They have hypertension and they have, I would have called it MAHA, but like TMA. Um, and the question is, which one is driving the boat? And I always feel like I'm not sure which one it is. And we work on blood pressure because that's the easiest thing to work on. Do you have an approach here on like how you disentangle hypertension-driven secondary TMA from primary TMA leading to hypertension? I do, Josh. And I will give you my, my personal experience here in addition to a couple papers. And I think one of them we cite in the write-up too. And I'll tell you how this came to be. So, you know, as I mentioned, I'm a transplant nephrologist. During our pre-transplant evaluations, I had seen patients who who would come to us with a history of, you know, these are young patients, 30, 40 years old, who have lost a kidney and they have been labeled as hypertensive nephrosclerosis. Sometimes they have a biopsy, sometimes they don't. And during their pre-transplant evaluation, you ask them a question. So, what really happened? How did the how did you how did your kidneys fail? And it's a classic history I get. You know, I was doing fine. I was coaching my son's basketball team and I had a headache or I had a blurry vision and I didn't feel so good. I went to the emergency room and my blood pressure was like 200 over 100 and I was told I was in kidney failure. And that they start dialysis then. Uh, they're on dialysis and they're referred to a transplant. During my evaluation, we have genetically tested all these patients, all these young patients, 20, 30-year-olds who give us this history and we have identified genetic mutations in them. To give you a sense of numbers, over the last eight to 10 years, I have a cohort of about 70 potential AHAS patients. And out of those, 20 are those that actually had a diagnosis of hypertensive nephrosclerosis. So my approach now is that if it is a young patient, so so there are two parts of the story here. Of course, if you're seeing a patient who, just like you said, it's a young patient, They present with severe hypertension and kidney failure. And I think it's appropriate to control their blood pressure. But if in in 48 hours, 24 to 48 hours, they're not turning around, I would be worried about, um, and their kidney failure is not getting better, I would be worried about a genetic component. 
And I send genetic testing on all my young patients. Um, very recently, I was consulted in the community in, in exact same situation, young patient. He even had LVH on his echo. And the concern was, well, you know, he's got hypertensive symptoms, ended up having a pathogenic C3 mutation. I have a very low threshold to do genetic testing in these patients and have a low threshold to treat them with anti-complement therapy if, you know, you give them day, two days, three days, kidneys going into failure and it's not recovering. These patients end up on dialysis. They don't recover if they're not treated on time. And this is in contrast to older patients who present with hypertension. We don't know the cause. I leave them alone, but I don't give up on these younger patients. Can I ask about the genetic uh, mutation question? You know, I'm from Canada. We don't have easy access. Is that like a yeah. panel that they do? Uh, you just send off and yeah. say, is, there's a TMA panel or, or do we have to ask for Correct. specific things? Absolutely. No. So now we do have a specific panel. It's you, They call it a TMA panel or AHAS panel. And there are a few different labs nationally in the country that are doing this. And they're very standardized labs. They're what we call CLIA or CAP certified. Their sequencing methodology is pretty good. And they all use what is called the ACMG, the American College of Medical Genetics criteria for calling the variants. So it's a standardized process. WashU has a genetic sequencing lab on campus, so it really makes life easy for us. But Iowa does it. Uh, I think Wisconsin does it. Uh, Mayo does it. So there, And then there are some private companies who do it. So yeah, it's widely available. And it's a panel to answer your question. It's a panel of 13 common genes. Yeah. It, it, for the rest of us who don't have it on site, it can take a couple weeks to get those results back. And so you're stuck with the question of like, what should I do between now and when my sequencing results come back a month from now? The genetic testing and all of that is, is never going to help you with clinical diagnosis bedside. This is all uh, for long-term determining, you know, how long you're going to treat these patients, what is the etiology of disease. You know, I always say we're lacking the troponin of TMA. We don't have that biomarker that's going to help us immediately decide. So, but genetic testing is critical. If, if they ultimately lose a kidney, end up getting a transplant, it is important to know. We, we have had recurrences. We've had de novo TMAs because they were missed in the native kidney. So there's, there's a lot. And I'm, I'm changing the subject a little bit, but I kind of want to bring this back for other people listening to this besides nephrologists. But what is, so what we need to be doing is like creating awareness and not just for, for nephrologists, but like our trainees and to get yeah. the people on the front line starting to think about this and be like, oh, I should get nephrology involved now as opposed to a week later. So what is your sales pitch to them? Like, these are the things that you, sh that if you see this, you should think TMA. Yeah, that's, that's a brilliant question, Sophie. Something that I have kind of thought about and, you know, we've, you know, when you say front responders, we've talked, we've thought about ICUs, emergency rooms. We've talked about like, how do we educate people? How do we get the word out? I don't have a clear answer on how we would do it, but you know, when you're, you're asking when to think about TMAs, right? When is that kind of what you're alluding to or? Right. When you're trying to teach them about TMA and you want them to have certain things that sort of ping their brain to think it, what is it that you're telling them? Like anemia and neurological stuff is like TTP, right? Right. But so that's, I mean, that's what people typically think. They think about the TTP pentad or whatever, or the HUS triad. But beyond that, but those are all I mean, late. I think that, yeah, those are all late. When we are, I think, it, you know, we're going to be missing a, a bunch of TMAs if we don't have people thinking about it before nephrologists get involved. So, so I, I don't know if, uh, if Anoja is uh, there right now, uh, but I can talk about what we kind of put in the write-up. So basically, uh, you 
most of the time you're going to have evidence of a microangiopathic hemolytic anemia. And if you uh, see the hemolytic anemia with like low heptoglobin and elevated LDH, which comes from uh, cells, both red cells, which are lysing, as well as uh, from tissue ischemia. So if you have those features, your question should maybe even schisticides, though not necessarily. Uh, your first question is, is this immune hemolysis or is this uh, not immune hemolysis? So you do the Coombs test. If the Coombs test is negative, you very likely have microangiopathic hemolytic anemia. And then uh, you can uh, look at evidence of organ damage, especially for us, kidney. And then once once you have that, you really, if you can't rule out the TMA, you, you have to consider that this is a likely possibility. So it sounds like you're saying when we're educating the people on the front lines, because I think that that's one way that we are going to be improving how we are diagnosing these patients and getting nephrology or hematology involved is that beyond, I mean, this is before, you know, we're checking haptoglobin and schistocytes and LDH, but that we need to be having a low threshold for thinking about this in this population. Somebody comes in with uncontrolled hypertension and acute kidney injury or somebody's who on who's on like some specific medications maybe a little less common but really raising the TMA honor differential sooner and and perhaps encouraging that is what you're saying that we should be doing does anybody know how often it's just renally limited yes i was coming to that sophie exact you bring up this is what i was wanting to say is that um there are certain category of TMAs that actually may not present the hematological parameters with anemia, thrombocytopenia, hypertension is actually one of them. So hypertension, the autoimmune diseases, scleroderma, lupus, drug-induced TMAs, and the transplant-associated TMAs can often be renal limited. The exact, you know, the reason we don't know how often is because a lot of times these get missed. Because, um, you know, like you said, if you don't see hematological parameters, it's not on your radar, you're not diagnosing these. And maybe at some point, the biopsy gets done at a later point, it shows a TMA or shows a chronic TMA. So, and and I've, I've tried to look for literature to exactly figure out what is our percentage here, and, and I couldn't find it. So that's a tough one. That is a very, very tough one. And which is why the threshold, you're, you know, you have to have it in your differential. And it comes back to, it comes back to, we need to be biopsying more people. Like if we're going to find this disease, you're going to need to do biopsies. You need tissue. Yeah. If you have classic picture, you may not benefit from the biopsy if it's just uh, thrombotic. Then you may not even want to do the biopsy. This is just the undifferentiated AKI where you're like, I don't know. It's not acting like ATN. It's literally going on for a long time. Patient keeps getting sicker. And you're like, well, what's the advantage? Well, this might be an advantage. Are those are those patients going to respond to um, complement inhibition? They will. They will. In my experience, they have. It's it's not as straightforward for some reason as you would expect. And and maybe it is because by the time they're biopsied, we've lost that window and they've already had some dysfunction and you don't really see that full reversal of kidney function. That's my feeling there. But typically they, they, they would if you found them on time. And Quite, quite honestly, I, I don't even need full reversal. I want some reversal. Some right? reversal keep them, just keep them off dialysis, right? Yes. Right. Right. Okay. What about the urinalysis? Is this, is this something that's going to give you any clues? Is this going to be helpful or it's not going to really uh, differentiate this from any other type of AKI? 
Your analysis is always helpful. Uh, okay, how's it helpful here? Well, it can give us clues that this is a glomerular disease, right? So if you see uh, dysmorphic red blood cells or acanthocytes, uh, you know, you have proteinuria, this should tell you that this is not part of ATN, right? My concern is that if you have thrombosis earlier than that, more proximally to the glomerulus, you might not have glomerular findings. Will you have typically, is the year analysis pretty specific? Is it going to look like glomerular urine or may it just look like a, you know, no, no, it doesn't help with the diagnosis for TMA. If I guess that's what you're getting to. Yeah, you, you can't make a diagnosis for TMA based on any urinary findings, but it'll help you figure out if there's something else going on. Can they have a benign urine, no red cells? That's my question. Could the urine be pretty unremarkable? And then you do the biopsy and you're like, whoa. Right. I mean, you can see hematuria, proteinuria in some of the chronic TMAs. You may see it in acute TMA, but it's not always present. It's not always pleasant. You can't be reassured by a normal look or like an unremarkable UA. And are they acanthocytes? You know, the classic teaching of like GN acanthocytes is because it's squeezing through the the slit diaphragm or whatever. Is this, you know, this is endothelial damage. Is it it greater damage? Would you see acanthocytes or is it just red blood cells? I mean, the, the ones that I've seen, I actually have seen red blood cells, but I don't recall seeing acanthocytes or red blood cell casts. Yeah, I have not seen casts per se either. I don't know the answer to, to acanthocytes if you would see more of those. Yeah, I don't know if it's been studied formally yeah. at all, but one should always do urine microscopy. Oh, I'm, no, we're always doing urine microscopy, but it, it sounds like not, not incredibly helpful in this situation. Like if you don't see red blood cells in the urine, don't say, oh, this isn't a TMA. Oh, correct. Definitely. I think yeah. that, that's yeah. a good way to put it. Absolutely. Yeah. But if you have an AKI and hypertension and even a bland urine and person getting sicker, that can actually lead you down this TMA path pretty quickly and probably should lead us to do a lot more biopsies and even get biopsies that don't show us TMA to make sure we're doing enough of them. You know, adding to that hematuria question, I will say this, though, that in in Europe, in countries where, you know, the anti-complement therapy is not as easily available as it is to us, there's restrictions on, you know, the cost and all of that. And what happens is these are patients who have a clear-cut diagnosis of TMA or atypical HUS, and these patients have been withdrawn. They take the anti-complement therapy off, again, for reasons because it's not well paid for. So some groups will have have their patients do urine dipsticks at home. And just to see if there is hematuria to report back, to report if there's a relapse or a recurrence and to retreat. You know, so there's data to show that that's one way to monitor. But these are, I'm not sure how many of those come back and they truly had hematuria, how many were missed. I mean, there's no data to show that. But that's one of the cheap methods that has, you know, they've tried to figure out for for countries outside. Interesting. On the poster tour that we did at at Kidney Week, we went and we saw some I think it was data from the Netherlands about stopping eculizumab in these patients. Yeah. They actually were pretty yeah. successful. Yeah, I was, well, I was impressed. So, right. So that's the cure I have studied that exactly. So that's one group. The other group is Artisano's group that actually first proposed this idea about urine dipsticks. He, he's um, he's an Italian group, I think. So the mm-hmm. cure highest group actually recently just came out with their new paper. It was literally a few weeks ago when I was reviewing it for um, for, for somebody who was they, they actually did it initially from the native kidney, and now they have da- data on transplant. And mm-hmm. but regardless, both their studies show that patients who actually had complement mutations did poorly when the complement therapy was withdrawn. If you, so, if you have a genetic mutation, those patients yes. need to stay on their meds. Did, Interesting. Yes, yes. So that's the, that's the 
So, you know, it's feasible. I think it's doable, but you have to, you really have to pick. Uh, pick your, your patients. Patient. Correct. So do you think we should breeze, like we've talked a lot about this, but we haven't quite outlined. So we've got primary, which is complement mediated, which is through the alternative complement pathway versus mm-hmm. secondary TMA. Do we need to talk about like the alternative complement pathway that's like really complex? And you guys did a nice analogy with your basketball game. Is there any reason that we should touch base on that really quick? Yeah, I'm happy to explain it if you want me to verbally. Yeah, make it make it so we never have to ask this question again. <laughs> I don't know if that's gonna <laughs> You just but, need um, to read the write-up. That's all you need to know. They yeah, did a really I can nice job with the write-up. Go over yeah. the, the complement pathway. So, you know, and I guess everybody knows this, but so to begin with, there are three main ways complements activated, right? There's the complement, uh, the, the classical, the lectin, and the alternative. So the classical pathway is activated whenever there's an antibody that recognizes a foreign antigen, forms this immune complex. The lectin pathway is very similar to the classical pathway. It gets activated when lectins, which are proteins, they recognize um, carbohydrate patterns or moieties on the surface of a bacteria. So both of these pathways are very similar. They both need a trigger to get them going. The alternative pathway is, is different from these two because it does not require a trigger. It's constantly on and it's that process is called, you know, it's kind of called the takeover. Think of it like an idling car, like it's there, it's on, it's ready to go. And the reason for that is that the alternative pathway is actually evolutionary. It's much more older than the classical and lectin pathways. It's present in the primitive organisms, the one-celled organisms. And the classical and lectin really actually came through evolution when we when we started getting exposed to infections and vaccinations and things like that. So the alternative pathway is, like I said, it's on, it's, it's just ready to go. So what happens is ultimately the goal of the three pathways is to form C3B, to convert the C3 into C3B. And once that C3B is formed, regardless of which pathway it is formed from, it can really rev up the activation through what is known as the feedback loop or um, the amplification loop of the alternative pathway. So what happens is once that initial C3B forms, there are these factors B, D, preparedin, which combine with C3B and form what is called a C3 convertase, which is really an enzyme that's going to keep converting C3 to C3B. And this C3B is the central molecule for the entire pathway because C3B is an opsonin. It opsonizes the immune complex, it opsonizes the debris, the foreign material gets it ready for phagocytosis, You know, the C3A is released, which is an inflammatory mediator, brings in cells. Now, if the trigger goes on and the activation goes on through a multiple series of steps, then the terminal pathway gets activated, um, the C5B through 9 forms, which is called the membrane attack complex. And what that does is it pokes holes in the bacteria, causes bacteriolysis. So primarily, the whole system is really designed to get rid of infections for opsonization. I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I missed that. What happens between c 3 so and the terminal attack complex was it? Yeah. So what happens is, if you once you form that C three convertase, it forms yep. the C three B. If yep. additional molecule of C three B attaches to that C three convertase, it becomes a C five convertase. That C five gotcha. convertase is an enzyme that changes C five A to C five B. The C five B then C six comes and attaches to a C six. So so one by one those different molecules come and attach and it kind of forms per whole kind of figure yep. that these yep. come and attach and so those are the steps that happen. That's the Mac attack. The Mac attack exactly. 
So, you know, the whole purpose of the complement system, you know, really nature designed it for us to design to protect us from infections. But what ends up happening in disease is that the guardian of the intracellular space, intravascular, it's the guardian of the intravascular space. That's, that's a good name. That's, that's a good name. So that's what the compliment, compliment really does. had its marketing in line. That's a <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I can't believe that you guys don't actually have like swag and stuff. Yeah, why don't you have T-shirts? We're back to the T-shirts. <laughs> we are. Uh, we need you guys for that. We are not as creative. And so it's really the alternative pathway, like Sophia, you were mentioning. So because of that feedback loop, that amplification loop, it's that pathway that needs to really be kept in check because. Uh, if it's if it's let go, then the activation keeps going. And what keeps that amplification loop in check is those regulators, those factor H, factor I. Those are the regulators of complement activation. They regulate that pathway. And there are multiple different ways they do it. I can keep going on this if you want me to, or I can stop here. But uh, but if the activation keeps going, this MAC complex ultimately leads to endothelial injury, and then that propagates the whole thrombotic microangial. Okay, that was a nice summary. Yeah, well done, well done. It, it looks like you've been studying your doing your homework. <laughs> I have you know, I have <laughs> talked about compliment. I mean, I I every time I'm making a presentation, my son comes along. He's like, "Are you not bored of AHAS? Like, how long are you going to talk about this, mom?" I, I mean, he's just he's TMA'd out. He's like, "I don't want to look at that presentation again. I I don't know how you can talk about the same thing over and over again." So, <laughs> so that's what I that's what I do. I shouldn't say day in and day out, but it's what I truly truly love. Outstanding. Can he give the talk yet? So I'll tell you what. He actually just had a science Olympiad and they asked him a question about compliment does all of the following <laughs> except. And he came really? home and told me and he got it right. <laughs> and he, I, was, I was like, you were so big. <laughs> so they had options like it does opsonization. Gosh, I can't remember. There were three other, but the answer was uh, antibody production. So that's one thing it doesn't do, which is why it's called the compliment because it complements the function of the antibodies. So that kid got it right. And so I think um, after all these years of hearing me or seeing my presentation, something got into his head. Yeah, how, much did, how much did you have to pay off? Lack of interest. Yeah, how much did you have to pay off the science people to have that question in there? My God. Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> so we have a lot, we spent a lot of time thinking about echolizumab, which is a C5 inhibitor antibody. And it seems like we have a bunch of new things that are coming onto the market or are in trials or have just been approved. There's an IVC3 inhibitor, PEG-CEDA coplan, the oral C5 inhibitor, avocopan, Mm -hmm. uh, and then these other two meds, the the factor B inhibitor Mm -hmm. and a C5 cleavage inhibitor that have both had like positive beta in the last month before we're recording here. Um, How should we be thinking about those medicines and are they better than echolizumab or which situations would you reach for those? Are there certain genetic situations where those might be more effective than echolizumab? Right. So first of all, it's really exciting that we have all these drugs. You know, obviously, echolizumab was the only thing on the market. So of course, and that goes back to the fact that we are understanding a lot more about this. There's so much pathophysiology we know. So in terms of, you know, most of these drugs, we are going to see how they pan out for atypical HUS particularly. I will say this, that for factor B and C3, I am particularly excited about them for C3G because they are targeting more proximal in the complement pathway, which is really where what causes C3G problems. 
So I'm actually much more excited because we don't have a treatment for C3G. We see recurrence after transplant. We don't have a way to treat these patients. We end up giving them eculizumab, which is not ideal, or we get up, end up giving them steroids. So I'm excited for those two. I think I'm excited to see what they do for C3G. I know that factor B, they're also looking for patients who have AHAS, who may have breakthrough hemolysis or who may not respond to eculizumab. I'm kind of interested to see how that data pans out. But regardless, I think anything that's proximal to C5, you know, the terminal complex, and as long as it inhibits it, it should work. In terms of, uh, which was the other one you mentioned, Josh? So factor B and C3F. And then the avacopan, which we're seeing approved for ankyovasculitis, it's an oral C5 inhibitor. Do folks think about that as like a future maintenance therapy that's easier than coming in for IV eculizumab? Or I know that's super off label and and no one should be doing that, but... Right, right. right. So it's a C5A receptor, right? It's an against the C5A receptor. So, it, you know, when I think about it from a mechanistic standpoint, if it is going to block the C5A from getting onto the receptor, it's still not doing a whole lot on that C5B and the MAC complex. So I'm not entirely sure if that'll be very effective. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's an oral drug, so that's a big plus. What I'm seeing happen with some of the newer drugs is that they are trying to make them sub-Q. They're trying to bring in modifications so the infusions can be every eight weeks. So these other companies are also working on trying to make it, you know, where it's not, that people don't have to come in. But particularly for Avacopan, I'm not entirely sure with it just being on the C5A receptor, uh, how effective it will be for Reha. So that's like obstinization. Correct. You know, more mm-hmm. the intermediate mediator. The, yeah, right. It's that part, which is, it works actually great for um, some of the rheumatological conditions. I've seen data on rheumatoid arthritis and things like that where there is more data on C5A and C3A being, you know, mediators of inflammation. But here we're looking at an endothelial injury from that terminal C5B through 9. So I'm, I'll be curious to see how that pans out with that particular drug. So is that the difference between like the C3G versus the TMA? Is it, it's an endothelial injury and one is from like the, the membrane attack complex versus uh, something else within the alternative pathway that's causing right. C3 complexes, because I think it's fascinating that you can have something that's all associated with the alternative complement pathway, yet they present in such dramatically different ways. Right. So there are a few differences there, Sophie, I'd want to kind of highlight. And the short answer is we don't know 100% why mutation in the same protein causes two different diseases, but I'll give you what we do know. So for AHAS particularly, you know, the genetic mutations contribute about 60 to 70% of cases. Versus C3G, it's only 20% of genetic mutations, and a major chunk is actually acquired factors, so nephritic factors or autoantibodies that cause it. In terms of mutations in complement genes, so first of all, not all the genes that you see mutations in an AHAS do you see it in C3G. So to kind of clarify that. So the major complement proteins where you see mutations are factor H, factor I, C3, membrane cofactor protein, and occasionally factor B. You would see, we we have identified mutations in all of these in AHAS, but only in C3 and factor H and C3G. Even among factor H, which is a really classical example, is that even though it's the mutation in factor H, it's not in the same functional site. So what is hypothesized here is that in C3G, you see the mutations more in what is the N-terminal domain, whose function is fluid phase uh, regulation, versus mutations in AHAS are more in the, in the C-terminal or the N 1920 domains. The function of that part of factor H is 
that factor H actually has to come onto the endothelium, it has to attach, and then it works. So when there is a mutation there, it cannot protect on the surface, which is what leads to AHAS, versus if there's a mutation on this beginning functional side, it can cause fluid phase reg dysregulation, and then that causes C3G. So that's mm -hmm. one proposed mechanism for one particular protein. And like I said, you know, difference between mutations and acquired factors. But still, I think it's it's not 100% clear on why, say, for example, in C3, you can see a mut mutations would cause both diseases. Can I ask a slightly different angle question? One of the frustrating mm -hmm. things uh, here is also that for this, especially for uh, expensivumab, sorry, eculizumab, uh, we, we don't have... Ooh, ooh, shots fired! Uh, so there, are, there are no randomized controlled trials, right? I, I, I know this is a rare disease and I know it's, it's, not, it's hard not to do something for these patients mm -hmm. who mm -hmm. are having kidney failure. But at the same time, this is a very, very expensive therapy, right? And that's yeah. why access is, is limited partly because of that. But yeah. is, there, is there any way forward? Do you see there will be any proper randomized controlled trials in this area? You know, with the way, with how successful it's been swap, I don't know if they'll, if they'll do any randomized studies. My hope was that with newer therapies coming in and, and the mm -hmm. monopoly of one drug going away, that the cost would get better. Mm -hmm. But it hasn't. In fact, the newer drugs are as expensive. So I, I don't see and I don't think a randomized control trial is in the future. I don't see it. Not, not just for X, yeah, Eculizumab versus Placebo or whatever, but at least for these newer agents, right? Are we going yeah. to introduce each and every new agent just like that with a, you know, prospective one-arm trial or at so, least? Yeah, so for the anti-factor B that Josh brought up, I mm -hmm. think they compared their data to Eculizumab. So I think, and that's where, so what I think what, da and I'll have to look at that paper again, but what they were looking at, and I think this was in PNH, not in AHUS, if I remember Correct, this right. Correct, yeah. Right? And mm -hmm. so what they compared was that these patients were being treated and then they had breakthrough hemolysis and then factor B came in and took care of it. Like, is that, I mean, I don't know, is that a one-on-one? -on -one? It's like saying that you need factor B in addition. But so it was not like a head-to-head -head really, tr the trial that kind of you were alluding to. Mm -hmm. But there, there was that comparison that exists. You know, I, I do know that uh, I've gotten some invitations to enroll patients with AHAS with post-transplant recurrences and stuff, but not particularly for comparing, like you're not doing one with EQ and one with this other complement. So it, it looks like, you know, there are so many molecules, right? It would it would be a good area where you're not not treating them. You're giving them treatment A versus treatment B or treatment mm -hmm. A versus treatment A plus B, something like that, right? With, with no placebo arms. That's something that would be good to see for wider acceptance yeah right i mean i don't know if one will end up being more superior than the other i'd be interested in seeing in terms of side effects and infections and things like that what happens with some of these mm -hmm. uh, mechanistically when i see where they were at least c3b and they they both look promising to me i was initially concerned about c3 because i felt like it's hitting right at the center molecule will they be able to get through this drug without causing too many infections i would be more concerned about that to see if there's a good comparison between these two from that mm -hmm. perspective but i think in terms of efficacy i think they're they've they've found the right targets joel you had a question well i was just, i was it was kind of related is is you know, what, what's the path forward? Do we have kind of a, a, is there a way to get patients enrolled in trials? If I'm just at a community hospital, is there, you know, kind of um, 
The hematologists and oncologists have produced these oncology groups that run trials that are designed to enroll rare diseases at lots of different hospitals to capture, to suck all these things up. And it seems like this is, this is a disease like a lot of, like a lot of kidney diseases that really would benefit from that kind of organization is like, let's, you know, these patients usually end up in a tertiary care center. Let's set up and it's mechanisms. A, it's to- a rare disease with urgency too, right? So it's not like you can spend your time figuring out how to get them to the right place, the right person and get your data transferred or whatever else. Like you want to be doing something soon. And so like, in addition yeah. to being rare and expensive and not great data, like we also want to be doing something. It, well, and, and then it's, it's that co- it's and the third combination that's oftentimes when when it's expensive when it's expensive rare and da- dangerous is usually there's not good therapies available and this time it's rare expensive dangerous and good therapies are available it seems like a good fit for doing studies uh, right no big. studies are going on Joel I mean there are lots of trials actually looking at it whether they're doing it you know I think they're mostly looking uh, with they've, they've been it's it's a multi center trial that both the companies that they're making C3 and Factor B are doing one of them. I, I guess I guess, I guess what I would say is companies have a very specific type of trial in mind, right? Mm-hmm. They're looking to get a drug approved. Right. And there are other questions regarding the disease, prognosis and diagnosis, and don't get answered by those types of trials, right? That is true. That is true. That NKF group might have a role here. Right. They, they prop me out. I was thinking about that too. Start with the t-shirts and then and then go to the studies. <laughs> Start with a t-shirt, end with a randomized control trial. You know, that's the order that I usually promote. Yeah. <laughs> so I wanted to bring up the preeclampsia. Thank Anuja, you. Anuja, I think that you yeah. are, this is also sort of your realm. It is. Um, I'll, I'll tell you a little bit about it, but go ahead, Sophie. Okay. So just a little background. I work at the VA. So, so I don't see patients. very many female, <laughs> young, or pregnant patients, obviously. Yeah. But I've always thought of preeclampsia as an endotheliosis, which is clearly mm-hmm. endothelial injury. And then in severe cases, we can have a TMA. And whether or not we needed to get into sort of the imbalance of the SFLT1 PAGF ratios. Yeah. But it's an anti-angiogenic activity that we're seeing. Are we just on a spectrum of endotheliosis and TMA? And then should we be worried about genetic testing here? Yeah, yeah, I, I think we should be. And I'll, I'll tell you the reason I, um, so the project, it's a, it's a pilot study. I'm kind of literally going into this uncharted territory here. I got some foundation grant to kind of get it up and up, get off the ground. But the reason I got interested in preeclampsia and looking at complement and preeclampsia was exactly the reason that I got uh, got interested in hypertension. So, as I was mentioning during pre-transplant evaluations, we would identify these patients who had lost their kidney to hypertensive nephrosclerosis. The second most common group in our cohort at WashU is, is preeclampsia. These patients who lost their kidney after preeclampsia, we have identified mutations in those as well, and that was the trigger that I wanted to do a bigger study. And um, what I think is that it's not all comers of preeclampsia, it's a subset. It's the high-risk preeclampsia patients that may be at risk. And when I say high risk, I'm talking about those who have preterm preeclampsia or recurrent preeclampsia or preeclampsia where they have kidney failure and they do not recover. So I think that those are the patients which we should be testing for. That's exactly what I'm doing in my project right now. I'll, I'll, I'll let you know we've sequenced these patients and we are at the process of doing a variant analysis. So we'll figure out if, you know, what I've 
hypothesized is correct. We're actually collaborating with the preeclampsia registry that actually has sequencing data on, on, on patients, um, and they have lots of patients. So we'll, we'll see if this pans out. But my initial impression, just based on my little experience with my pre-transplant cohort, is that there is a subset of these patients where complement is, is, um, is involved. I was going to say, any particular uh, mutation showing up there? Is, is, is that a specific phenotype that is being associated with a particular mutation, or is it just all comers when it comes to the complement? So I don't mutation. know for sure, Joel, but we just uh, submitted a paper for publication. It's actually, this was a, this is a Finnish cohort that we are, we've submitted. So all Caucasians, and we've identified factor H mutations in those, only factor H mutations, even though we've looked at all all proteins and just a very small like i think we identified five patients with complement mutations so so that's under review right now and those but, were, and those were women with pre- those were preeclamptic patients pre preeclampsia this is all preeclampsia and i'm talking about um, you know these were um, preterm preeclamptic patients and um, the cohort that i have which is very interesting is that i collaborated with the obgyn core here at washu and it was interesting that 99% of the cohort here is African-American who have preeclampsia. And so I don't know if we're going to find something that's going to be different ethnically. I mean, if you're going to find that difference, um, we'll see. But I don't know if there's a specific protein that we're going to be looking at. Uh, we've also, I've also collaborated with Richard Burwick, who's a maternal fetal specialist um, who was at Cedars-Sinai. And he has a he he has a special interest in pregnancy associated AHAS and TMAs, and he has often sent me mutations just to kind of understand if they're pathogenic or not. And his cohort showed I found factor I mutations, I found C three mutations. So it seems like not a specific protein involved, but I you know we've seen mutations in many in you know like you would see in in any other AHAS patient. I mean, you wonder this might be a little bit of a reach, but you think about especially if it's more common in our black populations you know we've got other right. um, mutations or apol1 we've but basically a mutation that's if a, we only had know, somebody on this benefit. podcast who knew something about apol1 if only <laughs> i'm happy to talk about that but i think it's going to be really interesting to see what genetic variants you find and if these are known genetic factors that drive kidney disease risk in, in black populations or if these are new ones and particularly complement mediated ones that would be different and how that interfaces with, with um, mechanisms we already know about. Yeah. I'm interested. Yeah. I'm waiting to get some of the data. Yeah. Yeah. I actually had a question about using the genetic test data going forward. So you get the genetic de- data here, you find it a complement mutation in someone that helps you right now, but that can also help you in the future as you're taking care of this person. You mentioned transplant as one situation. I wonder if a person is going into a high-risk secondary TMA situation, like Mm -hmm. getting pregnant again or going on immune suppression again, or if their kids or other family members are going to go through pregnancy. How do we approach genetic testing in those people? And do we even think about preemptive therapies or intensive monitoring? Where are we going with this? Absolutely. Yeah. So I can definitely speak for the transplant population. I kind of, that's really my, you know, it's, it's what I do. So for patients where we identify a genetic mutation and it is clearly pathogenic. So, so maybe I'll take a step back. When you do a genetic testing on a patient, you may get one of five um, the report tells you either it's pathogenic, likely pathogenic, it's a variant of uncertain significance, is it benign or likely benign? Exactly, VUS. 
So if it is a pathogenic or a likely pathogenic mutation and you know that the patient has a TMA, you clearly have made, it, it's an AHAS, right? So if we have that patient and we have several of those, when we do a transplant in those patients, they are given eculizumab preemptively. So we give it to them at the time of transplant and we continue it afterwards. Okay, and- final transplant question with TMA, unless you have something else is- not everybody who's on uh, tacrolimus gets TMA. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. Uh, and these are in patients who don't have TMA uh, as the etiology of their kidney failure. Is is this population also potentially someone who's already been primed for it because of a mutation, and then so, they get the second hit? Right. So it could be two things. Um, it could be purely a drug-induced TMA, so it could just be TAC-induced, and those patients will respond very quickly when you hold the drug or you switch them to Bella. But yes, there could be a small subset of patients where TAC is just the trigger, and these actually ended up having a genetic mutation underlying. But that's um, the minority. That's not that, the typical story. Right. So I'll, so in the transplant world, okay, so I'll, I'll take it two ways. In, in general, drug-induced TMAs, a very small percentage have complement defects. Um, okay. Prima- you're right. But in the transplant world, it's different. What I have seen is that it's a mixture because oftentimes these patients are, like I mentioned, those who either had a misdiagnosis in their native kidney and now they've been given a TAC. So we've identified mutations and TAC ended up being a trigger. But outside that world, in, if you went to the native kidney world, in general, the, the role of complement mutations in drug-induced TMA is minimal. Does that answer what you were Yeah, doing? that was a right. great answer. Okay. I actually have a question here. So if you have a patient who has a transplant and has TMA, and mm-hmm. you let's say you found elevated levels of C5B9, Mm-hmm. And you identified a mutation. Mm-hmm. The patient was, and, the, and you're starting up. Would you stop this patient's tacrolimus, or <laughs> will you switch it, or then can you continue since you're already on up? Right. Uh, yeah, I think so. There are two or three different situations that can happen. So if there is a patient who developed TMA, and and you're talking about somebody who already has a mutation, right? Okay, well, so then that's just one case. If a patient has a mutation, then we would actually keep them on eculizumab and not stop the TAC because personally, it's a better immunosuppressant than switching them to Bella, which puts them at bigger risk of rejections, more particularly AMRs, and then AMR itself is a TMA trigger. So I am not of the opinion that if you know that there is a genetic mutation, um, I, I don't particularly stop the TAC in these patients. Now, if it's an, that doesn't happen, actually. I was going to say, if it's an older patient, maybe you could, because, you know, they're not as sensitive. I mean, they're less risk for rejections. But younger, it's typically what you end up seeing is younger patients with mutations and TMAs. And I always worry about rejection in those patients. So, no, I don't particularly stop TAC. And I get, I, I have been consulted about this question. Particularly, we had a case uh, from, uh, I think it was East Coast somewhere, they had a heart kidney, and they were very worried about, you know, stopping the tag. And we said, keep the tag going, stop, start the echo, the patient did beautifully. Okay, let's, let, let's try, let's try to wrap this up. Is there any other burning questions that people have that they really want to get answered? Or can we go to voting for what we, which region we'd like? Josh, I, I feel like I have, I have two questions left, but I don't want to drag us out here too long because I know we're at an hour and a half of, of everyone's okay. time. Well, then ask, then ask one of them. Yeah. One of them would be, <laughs> well, we've talked a lot about primary TMA. Uh, we haven't talked as much about secondary TMA. And I think the situation that I, that 
I had trouble with when I was on service the last time was with a secondary TMA attributed to lupus. And this was a patient who'd failed every line of lupus immunosuppression. And we were left with, should we be putting this person on eculizumab? And I just wonder how you think about complement inhibitors in things that are secondary TMAs, but are still working through the same complement processes. I think it's something that Anna was talking about earlier too. Yeah, yeah, definitely. In fact, this is very timely, Josh. We literally just published a review on the role of complement in TMAs and autoimmune diseases in the Journal of Rheumatology with Alchem. He's a, he's a rheumatology colleague. I wish that was out six months ago when I was in service, but that's okay. <laughs> it just came out last month. Yeah, I'm sure it was in review then. We know Alchem. Yeah, yeah, oh, that's right. Of course you do. How did I forget? Yeah. <laughs> so, um, you know, so, so the way I view it, actually, and it's it's not something that's in the, in the literature, but the way I view it is I, I kind of divide it into complement activation versus dysregulation. So, you know, what you're, or transient activation versus more permanent dysregulation. So what you're referring to in some of these patients is that there is this endothelial injury, there is complement activation, um, but they may not have genetic mutations to really dysregulate the pathway. So I think for that reason, if they're not responding to um, your regular therapy, I think complement therapy has a role, at least for a few doses to kind of calm that complement activation down. Mm -hmm. And uh, and then you you can stop therapy. So these are patients who don't need to be on long-term anti-complement therapy because you're kind of trying to bring that transient overactivation down. Having mm-hmm. said that, I think that even this is not di- just lupus, maybe that's not responding. You may have TMA in lupus as well. And that I know from our data, because we just kind of put that review together, is that we see TMA in about less than 10% of lupus patients, but those patients do really poorly. And and is that generally systemic or renal limited? It can, It is. Yeah, that's a great question. It falls into that category of renal limited. It's, it's mm. again, one of those diseases that you- And those patients get biopsies, so you see it. Yes, mm. yes. And so in those patients who have a TMA with lupus or other autoimmune diseases, it's not just complement, it's actually a combination. It's uh, And we've kind of put together a figure there. So it's, you know, neutrophil activation, it's complement activation, and it's, it's that whole crosstalk between these pathways. So if you have a TMA in lupus, I think I would have a lower threshold of starting anti-complement therapy, like- earlier versus if you just have mm-hmm. lupus who's not responding, I think you can wait and then try it for a few doses. Awesome. Thank you. You good? Oh, I'm good. Yeah. Thank you. Okay. Let's go. And let's, so we got primary versus secondary. Let's go around the horn. I'm going to, I know Anna has some strong feelings. I'm going to ask her last. So let's start. Sophie, what do you got? What are you going to vote for in Neff Madness? Primary or secondary? I'm going primary. You're going primary. Swap, what do you got? Secondary. Josh, what do you got? I, I'm going primary. I think the new meds are really exciting and seeing where that goes. I'm going primary also. Anuja. Primary. And Anna. It is primary, of oh. course. Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> ah. Nearly I'm going a sweep. I was worried when, when Sophia voted first for primary because judging by her draft picks, that was a bad sign. <laughs> <laughs> But, but I'm glad that that worry, went Don't forward. you worry. Don't you worry. I'm thinking like the blue ribbon panel. Yeah, okay. The blue ribbon panel is difficult to And I do uh, very poorly in my Neff Madness, you guys. So 
<laughs> okay, not a not a All great prognostic together. sign to vote with Sophia. Okay, <laughs> excellent. So so Neff Madness brackets open March first. They close March thirty first. Get your brackets in, and then all month, uh, take a look at nephmadness.com slash podcrawl for a schedule of all of the podcasts that you can listen to. We have one for every region. It's kind of a major part of the educational package this year. Okay, we're going to do our tubular secretion swap. You want to start us off? Sure. So a few uh, podcasts ago, I talked about the series called Peripheral. Uh, and I went around uh, trying to read the books uh, by the author. So it's a guy called William Gibson, uh, American fellow, but who's uh, now in Vancouver. And, and he wrote, uh, he started writing these books in the 80s. So I read the, the first of his series called The Neuromancer. Uh, it's written it's in 1980. It's a tough book. It is a tough book, but it's, uh, uh, yeah. it's written in 1983. Uh, and you can see how it influenced uh, Matrix, for example. It's sort of like a mix of Matrix and Blade Runner, uh, written in a Philip K. Dick style, uh, but a little bit more coherent. But it, it, it's tough, but it's, it's fun. Very little more end. coherent. <laughs> i think he he's he's a lot about setting and mood it is uh but it's uh, it, it's very it, it predicts a lot of things that happened later right the word cyberspace is from that book for example he creates, yeah he creates the word cyberspace that's right uh yeah he's one he's one of the greats of science fiction mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. uh he's also on twitter um, uh, or maybe or at least he was i don't know if he still is but uh, uh he's he's a good follow so Swap um, saying that that peripheral he also wrote that and you were able yeah. to snag that and read that too. I, have, I haven't reached the peripheral is his latest uh, series. I haven't. Uh, I saw the series. I haven't read the book, but I thought I would start with the beginning, right? So I went to Neuromancer. I mean, I've I saw peripheral or at least that first series or the first step or whatever season. You might get me to read a book. There if- you go. Yeah, that's that, that's, there. yeah, that's available yeah. as a book. And yeah. there's a book too also, if you want to read. Uh, ba- based on uh, your recommendation, I watched The Peripheral with my wife and we loved it. We thought it was great. Yeah, good recommendation there. Okay, Sophia, what do you got? I got sucked into watching a long series, like five seasons of something called mm-hmm. The Magicians. And my mm-hmm. husband absolutely hates it. And it's a little <laughs> bit kind of immature. But it's like it's it's very satirical, and um, I, I quite enjoyed it. Uh, so I think it finished up its its series in like on in like 2019. But for anybody that who likes that sort of stuff, it was enjoyable. Netflix. <laughs> yeah, it was on Netflix. The magicians. The magicians on Netflix. How many seasons was it? I think five seasons. Five seasons. Five seasons. Anna, what do you got? I don't know. I hate to break the string of. No, you should do it. Talking about the book. I know. I don't know when I'll be on a podcast again. So I just wanted to do a little plug in for nephrology for all the trainees. Like I teach medical students at VCU. Like I'm in charge of all the renal course. And I was just been watching this lack of interest in nephrology for so many years. And in spite of all this revolution of all the educational resources that Joel and others have started. And I just don't know, what is everybody's problem? I mean, nephrology mm-hmm. is absolutely amazing. Look it's what the we've money. got. Yeah, but get it. Yeah. Money is, money is yeah. there, but it's Not so... Not when you're graduating with crippling debt. Yeah, but it's so awesome. 
Like people go to primary <laughs> but it's care. it's so awesome. People go to primary care. Nephrology has the best primary care. There's nothing like seeing a patient every single week for years, right? Nobody has that. And then we have, you know, this relationship with pathologists, and then we have TMA and all these <laughs> other things. Come on. It's super yeah, cool. hashtag I, make I, nephrology cool again. I couldn't agree t-shirts, more. T-shirts, we yeah. need yeah. t-shirts. Right? Yeah, the, the more t-shirts. t-shirts. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, like what you mentioned about the longitudinal relationships, that's phenomenal, right? Like you, you get to know people, you get to know their families, you see them on dialysis with their families, you see them on transplant. It's, it's, it's such a rewarding feeling. Yeah, I, I mean, I pri- yeah. provide more primary care to my patients than many of their primary care docs do because they just don't feel comfortable. Absolutely. Yeah. Anuja. Yeah. <laughs> I am not a book reader, Joel. I don't, I don't, I don't. Yes. <laughs> you and me. I, I don't read. I mean, I, I will tell you, I have even forgotten the name of that book. I, I bought it with all my enthusiasm. It was a, it was an inspirational book. God, it's sitting somewhere in my office. I can't see it, but Anyway, I can't. So, sounds like it was very inspirational. <laughs> <laughs> and and, and, what I, did, and I, I kind of flipped through it. I'm like, this is really good. And then I went and told my 15-year-old, I said, you know, you must really read this book. This is amazing. <laughs> oh, my God. I'm such a bad mom. But, no, I don't read. Um, I think, the, you know, in terms of not a big TV watcher either, but, I mean, I think the last series we watched was Dope Sick, and it's um, – and I, I, and I, it's, it's, I still think about it. I'm, I don't know if you guys watched it. It's about the opioid pandemic uh, mm-hmm. epidemic in America and how it came about. Have any of you watched it? No, no. I haven't. No. Oh, my goodness. Okay, you, you must absolutely see that series. It, uh, it shook me to the core. Um, I did not know that – you know how we think about pain as the fifth vital sign. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is was this was actually introduced by the drug company. Mm-hmm. It, this 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 came from them, um, and it's it's a true story. So um, I think that's influenced me heavily. And other than that, adding on to what Anna said, and I'm a, I'm a counselor at Women in Nephrology, and we are mm. doing a, a little part playing a little part in that we we've launched a mentor mentee program where uh, we are soliciting applications from residents students who are interested and matching them with mentors to to kind of generate that interest and and get that one-on-one connection going are you only looking for women mentors no 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 joel we would love to have men mentors and we actually we would and actually, you know, you know, we, it's called women in nephrology, but it's for both men and women trainees. Um, and we actually have very few male members in, in the membership, but we, we are, we'd always love to have. And if you're interested, oh my God, it would be amazing. I think I just got your email today uh, to. Yes. So you're, you're part of that. Yeah. My God. Yes. Thank you. Because you actually volunteered to be both a mentor and a mentee, right? Right. We talked about that, didn't we? Yes. Mm -hmm. Yes. And yes. Perfect. So we actually, yeah, we have, so that's a perfect, of course you're right here. So um, yeah. So we're trying to do a little bit there to help with that initiative that Anna talked about. And I know it's a, it's a real deal. Awesome. Great. Excellent work. So mentor, uh, mentorship through women in nephrology and can you just go to the website to get involved if you didn't get that email i will send you uh, let me send you yes you can actually Perfect. just be, yes I'll, I'll send you a detail but it's also through asn so you can find it there too yeah so, oh really 
Yeah, so nice. you just have to go onto the ASN website and become a member now. You don't have to be an ASN member to be a VIN member, but it, it's very confusing. Um, VIN membership is separate. It's 75 a year, but it's separate from the ASN membership. So even if you're not an ASN member, which I know all of us are, but regardless, um, it, you can still be a VIN member. And, and is it $75 for trainees as well, or is it free no, for No, for them? trainees, it's free. For, for fellows, uh, for all the trainees, it's completely free. Now, can awesome. men be WIN members or yes. just WIN yes. mentors? No, no, no. They can be WIN members too. I mean, Ben Humphreys is a WIN member, uh, Brent Miller. Uh, some of these people that I know, I've kind of pulled them in. <laughs> so, yes, they are. Um, they're members. Okay. Okay. Right. Josh, what do you got? Um, yeah. So, I think if, if folks know anything about me from this experience, uh, I think that my three favorite things would have to be something like podcasting, history, and dad jokes. And I feel like I've found something that just brings all those things together in this really perfect way. So the Mobituaries podcast, does anyone else listen to this from, from Mo Rocca? Uh, so Mo Rocca is like a, an actor, comedian, writer, person. He was one of the um, the guests on Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me all the time for NPR. And he um, also and he does, hosted the, uh, what's that, uh, the spelling or the geography or something, one of those. Mm-hmm. He's, he's the host for that, right? Yeah. I think so, yeah. yeah, yeah and yeah. so he does. He is on CBS now. He does a bunch of different things. And um, he does this series called Mobituaries where he talks about the obituary mostly for people or for things or for other things that passed in, in the past. Um, and gets deep into the history of that person or that thing. Um, so I think for, for our audience, I would highly recommend last week's uh, podcast, which was about uh, bananas, especially with the potassium uh, spin. Um, so he talks about the banana that was the banana for everyone for everyone in our grandparents' generation called the Gros Michel banana, which is apparently a much tastier banana than the Cavendish banana that we find in our grocery stores now and then the like international plague that took this banana out um and then does a taste test of the gros michel awesome tasting banana versus the new cavendish not so tasty banana um with andre de shields who is a, a broadway legend from the whiz and from um hadestown is, is what he got a got a tony for uh, and they actually do a musical about bananas altogether at the end of it. It just was fantastic. So the the the, the classic banana is not extinct. It's still available, just not. You can get it like from artisanal small growers who still are able to keep this alive. Yeah. Are they are they more green bananas or more like ripe sweet ones? Because they're they're only- sweeter and creamier is my understanding, but I haven't gotten to taste one oh. of these things. That's the hard part about like because- food TV and food podcasting is like you don't get to taste the thing. You just get to hear people talk about how good it is. I mean, only green bananas are good. So well, just slightly <laughs> green, not totally green. Well, not totally, yeah, but mostly green. Yeah, I, I'm a more yellow with spots banana person, but now I think I need oh, to go no. for other bananas aside from this. Yeah. Oh, no. We like make banana bread like once a week in our household. So me too. Oh my yeah. god! I, I don't know. Gr- growing up, Ninja, and- we're like best friends. I know. Already. I was gonna say that. I mean, my freezer is full of frozen. Every time it's ripened, it goes in there and then comes out the banana bread. Oh, well, god. yeah, but you know, growing oh. up in Russia, like banana was like the mo- the most coveted thing. You would get it like once a year, and you had to stand in line for it. And when somebody brings bananas home, you would eat them on the spot. So green mm-hmm. bananas were for it. <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome 
That's <laughs> awesome. So uh, my tubular secretion is uh, recently a company called TapBots came out with an, a new Mastodon client called Ivory. It is for um, iOS and iPad OS. I think it is an excellent Mastodon client. It is so enjoyable to use that I'm using Mastodon more. Uh, not a lot more, but uh, definitely more, definitely moving in that direction. And so uh, my tubular secretion is the is Ivory by TapBots for uh, your Mastodon enjoyment. Man, I am oh. such a late adopter of everything social media. You know, I got on Twitter in like 2019 and I don't get Mastodon and all these different things and how, I don't know how to use it. I need like a tutorial. Okay, yep. we, will, we will get that for you. So how, how is it going on Mastodon? Is it kind of catching up or what's, what's, how is so it? So what I would say is um, I have recently reached kind of a cohort of interesting people on Mastodon and there are good conversations on, nephro- on nephrology. It is yeah. not nearly as big as Neph Twitter, but the people is that are there like are engaged money? and interested. Interested. Yeah. Yeah. I, 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 that's what I was kind of, I, driving a tractor of, or something. <laughs> I had a stack of $100 bills that I needed to finally count. So, yeah. Sorry, I, 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 I had muted myself and I unmuted to say that uh, Mastodon is actually... <laughs> you can keep that in as a starter uh, uh, joke. <laughs> the, um, uh, it's actually, I, I agree with Joel, it's becoming uh, much more uh, interesting. It's, it sort of reminds me of 2013, 2014 Twitter. I think that's a great comparison. It really does feel kind of like early Twitter. It's a few people. They're having good, they're engaged with good conversations, good topics coming up. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, uh, and, and, and honestly, Twitter seems to be getting worse and worse. Uh, yeah. Big outage yesterday and mm-hmm. uh, new rules coming up. And it, 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 it feels, it doesn't feel good. It doesn't feel like a healthy place. It, does, it certainly doesn't feel like a place that I want to continue to contribute to. Though I'm not, I'm not leaving Twitter, but mm-hmm. I am uh, definitely putting more content on uh, on Mastodon and putting it there first oftentimes. Is there a place for Neff Madness and, and Mastodon? Yeah, absolutely. I, tweet, absolutely. I, I tweeted I, about it yesterday. So I, I the first mm, hashtag of... You tweeted Nef, about it. You tweeted about, about it. it. Yeah. Yes, oh, I tweeted about it. Yeah, so the Neff Madness hashtag is now on Mastodon. All right. Good work. Good work. <laughs> Excellent. Yeah, I also need a tutorial on how to... Tutorial on how to... <laughs> Yeah, uh, that's good. <laughs> <A> tutorial. <laughs> tutorial or a tweetorial? <laughs>